In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We come to the second part of our instruction in meditation on the rite of the Mass. Last week was, if you were, the preamble, the sort of setting up of what we do to prepare ourselves to come to Mass. And this morning I will comment on what we call the introductory rites of the Mass. The bell rings, or perhaps in whatever church you're at, they might not have a bell per se, but the music begins and everyone in the church stands as the procession of the priest and the ministers begins its way. And this is to give a sign of common unity. As you may know, there are certain days of the year when everyone processes into the church. I see all the rival smiles when I come to the pulpit on Palm Sunday and say, okay, everybody, up you go, we're going to go out to uh, have the Palm Sunday procession to Mass. Uh, we do it also on the Easter Vigil in a grand way. But for practicality's sake, we don't do it at every Mass. You might remember last weekend, how excited you would have been if Father said, okay, everybody, outside we go for procession into the Mass. So for a practical reason, everyone rises. But it's to give a significance to us. The procession is not merely, well, Father has to get dressed for Mass somewhere and then get to the altar so we have a procession. No. It hearkens to our minds that we have come from the various places and we are making our pilgrimage to the eternal city. As St. Paul has said, you are strangers and sojourners. We have here on earth no worldly city. We're all making our pilgrimage. Some are further, some are shorter. Some like to walk at the front of the line, some at the back of the line, but all are making their way into the glory of eternity. And so, when the priest and the ministers arrive at the foot of the sanctuary, if there is a tabernacle with the Blessed Sacrament, they genuflect on their right knee, just as you did, giving adoration and glory by right to the Lamb who was slain. For no priest is beyond God. Even the Pope genuflects in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And then the priest ascends up the space that is called the sanctuary. You might have some linguistic hearkenings. Sanctuary takes its name from the old Latin word sanctus, meaning holy. The sanctuary is the holy place. And it ought to be elevated. And again, not for a functional reason. It's not just that, you know, Father is so gosh darn good looking, we all need an unpeated view of him. It is rather what we know from scriptural comedy. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. We've seen in the Psalms. Right. Who shall climb to the Lord's mountain? Moses ascends to the holy mountain to see the glory of the Lord. And so the sanctuary must be out. Mercifully, it's only four steps, not a whole mountain. I should get a little winded when I got up there. But it is up in an elevated and a holy place. Then the priest comes to the altar. And a brief comment about an altar. In a Christian church, the altar is to be made in such a way that evokes two very important realities. The first reality is that of sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of the cross that wins salvation. The sacrifice of the cross is the fullness of the entire old law. That's why Christ is not being snarky when he says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body that would be sacrificed. But of course the power of the sacrifice is given to us through the new law of grace instituted by Christ at the Last Supper, when he fulfills what had been given to Moses, 
when the Passover from death by the sacrifice of a lamb is fulfilled in a real way through the sacrifice of Christ given at the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, an altar should have those twofold meanings where it can clearly evoke a place of sacrifice. That's why the top of the altar is stone. And it also it can clearly evoke a table. So those two realities might be held deeply together. The altar can be arrayed in many ways with cloths and so forth, but the church asks that candles be placed on the altar, and this is a mystical evocation. Now, in the instruction of the church currently, there are to be four to six candles on an altar. Yes, there are functionalities, right? If there are certain situations where you can only have two candles, so be it. But there should be four to six candles on the altar. Four candles on the altar generally during the penitential seasons of Advent and Lent. Again, you might know from the scriptures in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation, the throne of God is surrounded by the four living creatures the four Gospels that are given to us, and so it evokes the pure and simplicity when the four candles. In more regular times of the year, there are the six candles. Now, this is also an evocation from the book of Revelation. Before the glory of God on the altar of God are the seven candles that represent, quote, the seven spirits of God. And in the book of Revelation, you might know that the Apostle John hears from God the Holy Spirit the phrase, to the presiding spirit in the church of Corinth, write this, or the presiding spirit in the church of Laodicea. That's the bishop of that place. Now, in a parish church, they have six candles on the altar. The seventh is not there. It is a symbolic evocation of unity with the bishop of their diocese. That is why if a bishop of a diocese comes to a parish church, a seventh candle is placed on the altar because the presiding spirit is, is here. Now, of course, even as some of you know, we do not have a bishop in the Diocese of Madison right now, but still the idea holds. And so thus it creates a mystical reality. As St. Paul says, uh, in the present I see figuratively, partially, then I will know fully, but it evokes these things. The priest comes up and does this curious act. He bows low and he kisses the top of the altar. Part of that is a clear reverence. This is the place where the sacrifice of the Mass takes place. This is the place where the monstrance is held during Eucharistic adoration. It is holy. In an altar is to be enshrined the relic of a martyr. We have the great grace that in this altar is a relic of the apostle and martyr St. Jude. And so out of reverence for those holy things, a kiss, like in any dignified manner. You might kiss a child on the head because so that they are special and beautiful. You might greet a friend with a kiss on the cheek out of friendship and dignity. And similar to the altar. Then likewise the priest reverences it with a kiss as an indication to himself and to the people that he who has renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God, this becomes, if you will permit the term, the romance of his life that he is to give his life, the power given to him to confect the sacraments, he must live in his life in a way full of charity and love so that it will give fruit and bear life throughout the church. Here is an analogy that hopefully you will accept. Perhaps you have been to a wedding. At the end of the wedding, they will say, uh, we now introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Boangeries. And Mr. and Mrs. Boangeries share a little kiss and everyone claps and so forth. 
Now we all know that that kiss is evocative of something further. And that if Mr. and Mrs. Boandries maintain a fidelity to that kiss, well then in, you know, nine months or two years, four years, six years, eight years, whatever, there'll be all kinds of little Boandrieses running around. And so it becomes a sign for the priest that it is the giving, the sacraments of the church which give life to all things. When all of that symbolism is completed usually when one of the psalms of the church, the very words of God are chanted over the top of it. There is the brief falling of silence and then the signing of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we all know it is not a mere ritual masochism. It is an evocation of the blessed Savior who said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It is a hearkening to the power of the Apostle Paul who says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. It is a hearing of the words of the Savior who says, take up your cross every day and follow after me. And in that cross, I draw all people to myself. That on the cross was the great invitation into the very life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the beginning and end of all things. Speaking of which, time is... I know you all love a 25-minute sermon, but time is up. And so as we continue our meditations, let us appreciate these great mysteries and ask Holy Mary to intercede that we will say the Mass well. Holy Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.